Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to what I believe we still call Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, today, this is like a special episode for us because- A, a, very, epi- first, a very special episode it of is, Ink Stained Wretches. It is the first episode post-publication of your book, Broken News, buy it on Amazon or your local bookstore. But I think it's interesting because your book is about what is going wrong in the American news media, but your book is very right. Well, as I... So we... So I have... But I have a lot of questions. As I point out in the book, I don't know whether you've... I, it doesn't have an index, so you can't do the Washington read. But my acknowledgement of you and... I have not read the acknowledgments. The acknowledgement of you and gratitude for this podcast because... When I started at AEI, it was suggested to me that maybe an interesting area for me to pursue was media criticism. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. I hate journalism about journalism. It's, you know, for all the reasons that I have explained over time. You, though, love. But I love it. You love the trades, right? You like into it. And having a friend like you and then having a reason every week to do this made thinking about the book and writing the book a lot easier. And I'm so glad that you had this idea and you so, I'm so glad you made the podcast because really the book is a, in a substantial part the result of the work we've done together. I'm so pumped. Well, you know, I I got to really like reporting on media. I, I, so we both worked at Fox and in, in my three years at Fox, I got to see like what a powerful, incredibly powerful platform this thing is. And often now when I, I just, I just talked to somebody who was interviewing at the free beacon and interviewing at Fox and they, those kids always say, you know, the beacon seems like a better work environment, but like Fox, it's this platform, it's this platform, it's this platform. And it yeah. is this incredibly powerful platform. And I got interested in like, the thinking behind like the content. And so when I was at National Review, I started really doing reporting on media, like what's going on at 60 Minutes when that was the big show and Mm -hmm. what's going on at CBS News and what's going on here, there and everywhere. And then like, you know, reporters are so self-centered and jumpy about themselves that you end up having a lot of fun and making a lot of trouble. But anyhow, there are so many stories to be told about what's happening in media. So that brings us to your book. I have a million questions, but give us like the elevator pitch on the book. Oh, or you know, people who are people who are listening to this, this podcast to are interested, interested in media. But like, give us the elevator pitch for why people interested in media and media criticism should buy the book and read the book. Well, first, let me say, can you imagine how weird it is to do press about a book about the press? Can you imagine how strange it is to be talking to journalists who are like? So your book is about anger and rage in media. I don't think that's weird at all because reporters are so solipsistic. Oh, uh, totally. And, but they, like, we can get to the Times wrote a piece about your book, but they they assume you're not talking about them. They're like, you're talking about the other guys. So doing TV, so going on so cable totally news. totally fine. Going on cable news to talk about what's wrong with cable news is challenging. Talking about this stuff because, you know, uh, the... People who hate, hating Fox is a avocation, like Brian Stelter, RIP, basically. We'll get there. We'll get there, everybody. Got a lot of messages being like, how could you possibly tape before Brian Stelter was axed? Reliable Sources, RIP, was a show that was substantially about Fox News and right-wing media. Hating Fox and the intensity of hatred for Fox is a whole cottage industry. And it is not where I live, right? And when you talk to reporters, I've had to turn down a lot of press because people want this to be a book about Fox. And it's just not a book about Fox. Obviously, I was at Fox, and my experiences at Fox informed what I wrote about. I spent 10 years there. But I also worked at the Washington Examiner, and I also worked in local television, and I also worked in small town newspapers, and I also worked at Capitol, blah, 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 blah. And... 
this is a book that's about how the massive disruptions in the media marketplace starting in the mid-1990s, cable news is a big part of that, left us at a place where news organizations are increasingly concerned about creating strong emotional connections to consumers rather than providing reliable information for consumers. And some of that is just attributable to the fact that information is not hard to get anymore. Previously, it was hard to get information. Now it's easy to get information. And so that's a big change. But the other change, of course, is who the, the amount of money. Here's what, here's what you know. Running the free beacon and having reporters reporting, right, and many of the leads don't deliver, many story ideas don't pan out. Yeah, you can spend a week on something yep, and it's- They come back and say, yeah. you know, I tried, it's just not there. I can't, I can't get it off the deck. And that's expensive. And that takes time. You know what doesn't take time and, and doesn't cost much money is if you just had people writing opinion pieces, right, and just cranking out unreported, strongly emotional, performative outrage pieces. That's cheaper and easier to do. And it's also, by the way, you know, one of the problems that I think this produces is there is a over the the – it is a sort of version of, it is a capture, that the news organizations become captured by the audience and therefore it is easy. I write about the Washington Post a lot. Our listeners will not be surprised that the Washington Post comes in for some criticism in the, in this. But the Washington Post is, is a great example in this stuff and a very sad story about a publication that, that was trying to hold itself up as as we as we would say what's the term that we use by the way shall, i don't should we out Ryan? will is it do you think he'll be in trouble if 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 we if we point out that one of america's leading conservative public intellectuals is an inkstained wretches fan Ryan salam our yeah. friend yeah well, you're outing him Ryan, right, sorry Ryan, i did you solid sorry Ryan. but anyway Manhattan Institute President Raihan Salam. As he, as he talked about, we were talking about. I don't think it's instinct Gretch's fandom that is going to get him in trouble. It'll be like, his, <laughs> you know, that he's been friends with me for many years. Well, look, the, this is the thing is that we're in the bunker with you, Eliana. The, but we were, ta- we were talking about what the term prestige media. And the Washington Post wanted to be prestige media. And the Washington Post wanted to be like the New York Times. wanted to be like that stuff. And then in the Trump years, they just went. Berserk, right? Like something broke inside the Washington Post because they were not making money and they found a way to do it. And the phrase that this one media scholar used, not disapprovingly, was that they were optimizing for anger a little bit better. And I'm like, oh boy, geez Louise. And you could see it. And the anecdote that I use in the book or the, the, the snapshot I use in the book is on the day of the fall of Kabul, which at that point was the biggest media story in however long, or the biggest foreign policy story in however long. It was the biggest story of the Biden administration. Yeah, until... until no, I, It was the biggest story since January 6th. Yeah, well, it was certainly the biggest story since January 6th, but from a foreign policy perspective, biggest story since, I don't know, the surge, like a, more than a decade, this huge story. And what was the number one story at the Washington Post? It was a clickbait piece of crap pasted together from press releases and archives about how this Roman Catholic bishop who had expressed his whatever about coronavirus vaccines was on a ventilator and might die. (laughs) Right? So it's like, yes. And then you read the comments and it's like, Darwin wins again. And that is, you know, you could do it certainly every day at every, at a lot of big outlets. And one of the things that I I, one of the reasons that I have resisted the kind of Fox bashing that many people who left Fox have done is it tells other outlets that they're superior, that, oh, well, huh, yeah, it's Fox, though, right? And you're like, no, it's all of us. This is a sickness that we have where rage clicks and umbrage and, you know, performative outrage is crowding out real journalism. Yeah, Fox does it. It's not cool, but so does the Washington Post, and so do a lot of outlets. And it, and I, the only other, I guess the only other thing I'd say about that is, I love the news business. I love being in the news business. I think of it as a business, indeed. 
and I love it. And I also don't think it needs to be boring and I don't think it needs to be stuffy and I don't think it needs to be those things. I think it can be, it can be loose. It can be fun. It can be interesting, but we have to remember now here, here, here's the real elevator pitch. If you want to be. This elevator has been going. We're on tall like building. the floor 500. Uh, it's a tall yeah. building. But here's, here's, here's the, here's what I hope the book does is encourages us as journalists and all of us as news consumers to imbue the work that we're doing and the content that we're consuming with patriotism. And that if you love this country, you know it's not good for the country to make money by inciting political hatred. It is not good, right? That doesn't mean you can't disagree, doesn't mean you can't be critical, doesn't mean any of that stuff. But if you love America, you cannot engage in, in, in commerce that is knowingly harmful to the country. So media owners have special responsibilities as Americans. Journalists obviously have special responsibilities as Americans because we are, enjoy these remarkable freedoms under the American system. And consumers have special obligations to do better and be better. I don't care what you eat. Because that's your thing, right? You want to go to, you know, eat gorp with Colin. That's fine. You want to, you if if you want if you want to op- open up the tail tailgate on your Subaru and dig into a bag of gorp, do it. I don't judge you if you want, and if you want to eat Taco Bell every day, I don't judge you. But if you're misinformed, you are not being a good citizen, right? You, if you have a junk food diet, are not being a good citizen. And we need to do better in that way to know that we have an obligation to our country and our countrymen and countrywomen to be to be good and thoughtful news consumers. I have a couple of questions about the mechanics of book writing. Mm-hmm. I have never written a book. Mm-hmm. I've never really been tempted to do it because it just seems so daunting to me. And I have questions about book writing and book selling. Hit me. Yes. So what was the most challenging part of the whole process? And I think like listeners would be interested in kind of like, how does a book come to be where you've got to have like a pitch and sell the book to the publisher. And then like, you know, writing it is like the, that's the end of the process. So what did you find most challenging? Was it the actual writing? No, it's right now. Selling it's it. selling is the it is uh, tell tell listeners name, a little name, bit about like what does selling the book involve and what is what do you find challenging about my it? My colleague, the great Nate Moore, had to build a Google Calendar just so that all of the people booking me to do appearances could have a place to put it so that it wouldn't overlap. I did like nineteen interviews on the day of the book launch, and it's different than like. No, nobody has gotten me to shut up yet in my life, right? You can uh, you can ask my ex-wife. You, there, there are a number of people you could ask in the world. Chris Steyerwalt is fairly unshut upable, But the truth is, when you're talking about your own book, it's totally different because you're protective of it, you're defensive, and you're concerned about your reputation. So you're like, cortisol levels are up, and you're like, okay, I'm going into this interview. Are you going to attack my book? Are you going to talk about, are you going to take it in a different direction? Are there going to be factual errors? That's always fun. When somebody starts an interview, they introduce you, they introduce three factual errors in the introduction. And then before you start the interview, you're like, well, that's so great to be here. But before we get started, I'd like to point out it's a couple yes, things. Yes, we that were I've laughing before Chris and I were laughing before we started recording that the New York Times on politics oh, newsletter wow. had, you know, the headline is a former Fox News insider spills the beans and we'll link that in our show notes. And then they uh, they do this wonderful piece about Chris and the book and they refer to him as a columnist for the bulwark. Well, I'm Steve Hayes may have emailed me that the dispatch that but they corrected it right away and you know, no complaint. Anyhow, Chris can't criticize them, but I oh. I I saw it and I was like, Oh my gosh, guys. It happens. It happens. We all make mistakes and the mistake was corrected. So but the hardest part is the selling for me and there's travel and you know driving back from New York in the middle of the night so I can get to the right thing. It's it, whatever. So there's that part. I had it very easy with this book. The first. Whoa, whoa. Before you do that. Yeah. Would you do it again? Yeah. I, look, I think I'm, well, l- let me, I'll t- first let me tell you. So the way this got, the way there was interest in me writing a book. And I think most of the interest in me writing a book were from people that wanted a book that was a tell all about Fox yeah, News, yeah. right? Tell you, you know, now I can finally tell the tale. Now, here's what I know. 
every paycheck that I accepted from the news corporation covered my experiences up to that day, right? And you can't then at the end, after they fire you, go, the scales have fallen from my eyes. I can't believe that all that was going on here. This is like the people who, when they renounced Trump, didn't just say, I'm not a Republican anymore. I don't like Trump. They were like, you know what? I renounce being a conservative. All the things I ever believed I'm throwing. You can't do that. That's not, that's not cool. So I, so it's not in my nature and it's not in my character, I hope, to be a sour graper or whatever. Like, life's complicated and here we go. So I didn't want to write that. But then my man, Alex Pappas, who left Fox News to be the, I, I'm going to get his title, but he's my, he's my editor and he has a fancier title, I'm sure, at Center Street which is a imprint of the Hachette Book Group USA. And Hachette had done my first book, Every Man a King, still available. Buy it on Amazon. But the Hachette had done the first book. And Alex, as a guy who started in small town newspapering, as he's from Alabama, I'm from West Virginia. And Alex worked at the Washington Examiner. I worked at the Washington Examiner. Alex worked at Fox News. I worked at Fox News. And I just admire the hell out of Alex anyway. And he's a great editor and a good writer that he was somebody who understood what I wanted to do and that I didn't want a book that took the cheap shots and easy way out, but that I wanted to, to wrestle with these questions a little bit. And boy, it was good to work with him. And it came together, of course, over chicken wings at the tune-in, as all good things should. You uh, should have gotten those fried macaroni and cheese. I find fried macaroni and cheese to be a lie. Maybe uh, maybe other people like it. I do. You yeah, like it? Yeah, there they come. It's like a triangle. They're it's super a gooier good with, wedge. With ranch. Yeah, no, it's a gooier so wedge. So good. I'm not saying, I just, I feel like when you can have a mozzarella stick, why are you having That's the fried true. macaroni that and cheese? That is true. That is true. Fried macaroni. Wait, Colin, oh, Colin, I've never even seen you eat, and you're telling us which fried foods we should be eating. They're two different things. That, I agree with that. Wedge but but like and but but so but but so so are Democrats and Republicans. You have to choose. If you have to choose, or would you just get the sampler? Yeah. I okay. The sampler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like it. That's why he does all the hiking. Yeah, yeah that's right. After he and gets kayaking, the sampler, please. that's right. He's got to work he's, it off. Exactly. Kayaking. He's got to he has, he has to kayak around the North Pole three times after he all right. that. All right. That I think that that about wraps our our special edition. That was like the inside, you know, magazine version of our newspaper today. Well, like a I, special, you know, inside the fold I, type I just, thing. I just will I just will say I'm very grateful to you and I'm very grateful to our listeners and I all the support. Well, we're only grateful if you buy the book. So, buy the book. Yes, that would be good, but I'm really grateful we have great listeners and I have really on this tour by the way I've been reminded that you know you guys are you guys are out there. It's like you know it, it it's it's very cool. No matter where Starwalt is, if you see him, and no matter how private a moment he seems to be having, he always wants to hear from you. So interrupt him, uh-huh, bother uh-huh, him uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> if you see uh-huh, this man. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, on our front page. <laughs> Guys, we really should have gotten to this this last week, but we recorded on a Wednesday. We normally re- record on a Thursday, which wouldn't have helped us anyway. I don't think this happened until Friday last week. Brian Stelter out at CNN. So before we talk shop about it, I think we should just relive some of the greatest hits. Oh, Let's play them. Gonna yeah. need a montage. Everybody makes spelling mistakes. All right, everybody does. I do, everybody does. But on Twitter, Donald Trump makes a lot more of them than most people. Uh, We don't see CNN or the New York Times rooting for any president, whether a Democrat or Republican. So disappointing to look at what we're seeing from right-wing media these days, where there's such an obsession with the deep state and these uh, revelations about the Russia pro. On Friday, I was about to go get dinner for my kids when Donald Trump Jr. attacked me in his speech at CPAC. Um, Something about me looking like a gender-neutral potato head. I think you're describing a different channel than the one that I watch. Uh, But I understand that that is a popular right-wing narrative about CNN. Example of a broader question for Twitter, which is, if you you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party? Or are you going to decide to stay home? Okay, well, Chris... My big question had been, you know, we talked about 
Chris Licht, the yep. other Chris, going to talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill and trying to tell them that he knows that the coverage has been partisan and off kilter at CNN. And my big question had been, OK, you can try to, like, tighten the leash, but it's very hard to do if you're not making major personnel changes. Well, last week we talked about the fact that he cut Jeff Tubin loose and now he's cut Brian Stelter loose. So the personnel changes are coming. And the Stelter thing, I had been hearing, like, there had been whispers about this for months. It wasn't clear that, like, it was actually going to happen. But anyhow, it happened. I, I, what is your what is your take? I don't I don't want to tap dance on anybody's miseries, but I don't think it's that. It, to me, it means like okay, he's signaling that he's serious about changing the network. I, I don't want to tap dance on anybody's miseries, but this is was long long overdue. That was a bad show, and Stelter's performative outrage and just the the goofiness of the idea that because look CNN substantially lost its way in the Trump years, right? And so did Fox, <laughs> but CNN got lost in the sauce pretty badly. And they, they, you know, for people who don't know, CNN, Jeff Zucker, who had led CNN, had a model which was to go all in on stories. The, and the term Hal Reigns of the New York Times coined was to flood the zone. And CNN was flooding the zone on flooding the zone. Everybody remembers the missing Malaysian airliner that CNN was like, well, just cover it constantly. We're only going to do one thing and we're going to shove it up your nostrils. And they did that with Trump. And it was way too much. And it was way too much. And They did that with Trump and they did it with Fox. And Stelter, well, that's what I was gonna say. Stelter was like the platonic ideal of that kind of coverage where there was an absolute monomaniacal focus on these things with zero self-awareness where he acted he and he acted like he was the platonic ideal of a journalist journalist and he, he wrote was like the platonic ideal of an insane partisan with when, no self-awareness of when what I was he at was fox, and what he was doing when i was at fox the stuff he would write about people at fox in this gossipy breathy like in the trades and here's here's the deal you cannot be both a competitor and crit effective critic. You can't do both at the same time, right? The I don't care what Burger King thinks about McDonald's hamburgers, right? I'm not going like, well, what do you guys think about before I get this burger, guys? What do you what do you think about McDonald's? I'd be like, oh, it's got rat poison in it. You don't want to eat that. Of course, I don't care what their opinion is. Just like I don't care what Brian Stelter's opinion was about the journalism of Fox News. He's doing the same thing, but in a different direction. And that show was embarrassing. And I, I'm sorry to have to say it. I wish Mr. Stelter the best in his life. I hope good things happen for him and his family and that it's all okay. But this was uh, a necessity for, for Chris Licht to, and I am really impressed by what CNN's doing. And, uh, you know, the News Nation model that I am excited about, I want to see that. At C I want to see it everywhere. But the for Chris Lick to be credible, that show had to end. And so he did. And that's good. I still have questions about, okay, you can, you can end the show. He's sending a signal. I still think it's going to take an enormous amount of work to unwind the the partisanship that has seeped in everywhere else in the network. And the rep reports indicate that he's focusing on the morning show, you know, which is not good either. And I have not, I have not seen um, it, but I, I have been tuning into that. You know, it's, it's like just a zero. It's, it's not offensive, but it's not like, it's not good. But the, the rest of the programming during the day, like still has the obsessive focus on like, Lindsey Graham didn't respond to the subpoena when there's like, you know, actual things happening in the world. You know, the Biden administration passes a student loan thing like that's real news that will affect the midterms. Like there's just still this, I would say, out of disproportionate focus on like the goings on with Trump and like people around Trump and Republican reactions to that, that still needs to be like unwound, which I mean, clearly will take time because it is like a muscle movement for it, these people at this point. But I, yes, yes, agree. But if CNN went from a white hot Brian Stelter spittle flecked outrage machine to just sort of normally 
slanted, right? If it was just like that, that would be a big accomplishment, right? That would be the progress, not perfection, baby. That's what I say. Like making it better is good. And I, I will CNN uh, regain its footing as uh, America's trusted voice for straight news when big, you know, because you remember the business model problem for CNN in the old days. Big news would take place and their ratings would crush. Their <laughs> ratings would shoot through the roof and then after the incident left, their ratings would collapse because people weren't, I guess I'll put it this way. CNN was cable news for people who didn't watch cable news. And MSNBC and Fox had had cornered the market on the, the partisan watchers, especially for primetime. So CNN was trusted, but not profitable. They had a very profitable website, but it was, that was the problem. Can they get back to their reputation about being a source for balanced news and breaking news? I think they can. But as you say, the trip between here and there will be tough and it will and it and it will involve more disruption, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, can't fire everyone at once. But I I'm I, you know, I, like I was what talk, I'm seeing. I was talking to somebody about this. A a a friend was saying that, you know, political campaigns and political organizations are suffering because not a lot of talent came out of these organizations in the Trump years. Like they didn't not train and bring up talent because basically there were strange people and creatures in Trump orbit. And so, you know, the RNC and like these other organizations that were huge, like producers of talent, like those people are like, you know, at Walmart and these, the big Amazon, the big companies, whatever, like the Bush alums, they're Mm -hmm. everywhere now. Mm -hmm. Like they're serious you know, smart people. And it wasn't quite the same in the Trump years. I actually think journalism is suffering in the same way where it's like, okay, CNN wants to get rid of Brian Stelter. Well, where do they go? Like journalism did not train up a lot of like serious people. There are a handful of superstars. There are like a lot of dodos that came up in the Trump years because like that was lost time. Like you could do like real stupid stuff and make a name for yourself. That's right. And I they think get the, both, get that guy. Remember that guy from Playboy? Brian Karam. Yeah, they get that CNN guy. CNN contributor put, Brian put Karam. That, put that guy right in there. Yeah. You want to fight? I, you don't need so to. So I, I think, like, the journalistic organization suffered a talent problem and it, and the political organizations. It's both. Well, the, the, the belief that we were on some vacation from history and the rules did not apply was bad for uh, a lot of places and a lot of people. And the idea, you know, one of the themes that we have discovered in this show is the revenge of the adults, right? The New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, other legacy media outlets, or however you want to call them, where editors and adults in newsrooms finally said, okay, enough with the enough with I mean, the we'll Twitter see, moms. Maybe there's, I know. there's like, you know, two steps in that direction and But but my my point is yes, th- I get it. That so so what's happening is that there was a period of time, and I think you would include in this the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement Donald Trump, all of this stuff that it was like, all the norms have been broken. And in the future, journalism will be, you know, me writing with a puffy paint pen, my feelings about this issue and saying it and speaking my truth. And it's like, yes, Queen, slay. And now it's the party's over and it's like, well, somebody's got to write up about what happened at the county commission meeting, guys. Like somebody has to go do the work of doing this. By the way, as for replacing Brian Stelter, dear CNN, do not you do not need a media criticism show. You are a big media outlet. You don't need a show devoted to talking about, you don't need the news about the news. You know what you can do? Just tell people to listen to Inkstain Wretches. We got it. We're good. We're over here. We are wretched and ready and we can do it. And you don't need to have your own show for that. Please stop. Okay. We, that was just part one of the Stelter thing. Cause we got some hilarious coverage of this. So the times covered it. And I was so amused by their explanation for why he was fired. So they they say, and I want to read this verbatim. This the is new, how they explain yeah, yeah. to their readers. They say, leaders of CNN's new corporate parent have suggested that they want the network's programming to have more straight news reporting and fewer opinionated takes from hopes, hosts, dot, dot, dot. It says, the new focus seemed to put Mr. Stelter, who has been critical of former President Donald J. Trump and his treatment of the mm. press, in mm. possible jeopardy. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that could describe Chris and me, too. Right. Has he been critical? 
I had yeah. noticed the little, criticism. Little, criti- little critical of Trump and his heavy-handed huh. you know, bullying treatment of the press. Okay. So, so put him in the crosshairs. Uh, so ridiculous. Like for someone who doesn't know something about this, looking looking for an explanation of what happened, like don't go to the New York Times. We will link that piece by who wrote it, Benjamin Mullen. And then even better was CNN staff apparently not happy with this move. This is so great. It's this amazing. Is my, so this the is Daily really Beast, my favorite item of the The Daily week. Beast headline is CNN staff fears right-wing billionaire will turn it into a dumpster fire. Well, at least he's not sensationalizing it. At yeah. least he's not sensationalizing it. And so the Daily Beast, again, we'll link the piece. It says, we look at how CNN's shock firing of Brian Stelter has shock. stoked internal fear- fears centered around one libertarian billionaire board member. And it goes on to talk about uh, John Malone, who is a, a board right, member. Wait. Uh, here, here's how they describe him. This is so great. Shocking move was made. Shocking move was made to appease John Malone. Here's their clause. A right-leaning billionaire, close friend of the Murdoch family, and key Warner Brothers Discovery board member. Is that really how John Malone's friends would say, like, oh, he's always hanging out with Rupert Murdoch every time I turn around? It's like the two are like besties. They're making each other friendship bracelets. Oh, my God. And it says he has made it well known that he would like CNN to be more, quote, centrist, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is very confusing. Scare quotes on centrist, whatever that means. Jeez. So I love, <laughs> this is like the opposite of Occam's razor. Like, no, it cannot just be that, you know, Chris Licht has a mandate to, like, unwind the crazy Jeff Zucker partisanship. It has to be that, like, it's a libertarian billionaire who's friends with Rupert Murdoch who's actually you know, behind the scenes dictating this. So it says, while Malone has denied that he is, quote, directly involved in any decisions about CNN, multiple current and former staff, staffers who spoke to us relate a fear that the libertarian, they're, but they're scared he is, relate a fear that the libertarian mogul is indirectly dictating an agenda to newly installed CNN boss Chris Licht. This is so, this is so ridiculous. And then I love that they're afraid he's going to turn it into a dumpster fire like Guys, yeah, we would not CN- want CNN to be a dumpster fire. Well, uh, the idea of fear, I-, I have not seen anything from Chris Lick so far that seems like he is purging people for journalistic integrity. That doesn't seem to be the mark. And look, if he does, let's talk about it. But so far, the calling Brian Stelter's dismissal shocking is ridiculous right this guy knows that that's not shocking that brian stelter has been on and, the grind well, too hard if it for was too in long. fact shocking to staffers at cnn like they're not paying attention to what is happening look it's a, it's a self-selecting group but the people i talk to at cnn are pleased the people i talk to at cnn it is are a self-selecting group are relieved and optimistic yeah uh, and there's good energy i would like to see the venn diagram of people <laughs> at friends like cnn staffers people who are friends with chris starwalt and then like the overlap there I was just there. And how large I was it is. just there last night. I'm going to be there again tonight. I think I think that is like Jonah Goldberg and two other people. Oh <laughs> no! Oh no! I'm uh, I'm hip. I'm I'm hip to the street. I'm in. Okay. Next up, we got Tuesday's primary coverage, and I think I think Axios has to take the cake for <laughs> for their uh, for their art on. I have to make sure that's real. The takeaway, oh, it's real. The takeaway is, you know, things are not looking good for Republicans because in this special election in upstate New York, the Republican Molinaro lost to the Democrat Ryan and none of the polls had Ryan pulling that race out. I was actually on the commentary podcast Yes. Was it yesterday? Yeah. Oh, yesterday. I see. You're invited yes. on the commentary, but yes. I haven't been back on commentary yes. in forever. Okay, fine. And actually, it was awesome. It was your new colleague, Christine, Christine Rosen, Rosen and great. me, and Pod. And so it was like a women dominant podcast. Was he nervous? Where we challenged Pod to mansplain to us. Oh, man. It's that, that he, He's never had a tougher filibuster than that one with uh, you two. Anyhow. Okay, so the graphic is real. Illustration. We're, we're going to link it. Illustration by Lindsay Bailey of Axios. Headline: <laughs> Democrat stunning turnaround, and it is a picture. So the the first the, the way that I saw it was in a tweet, and it was more effulgent in the tweet. Oh, I don't. Do you have the Do you have that tweet with the original? Yeah, you sent it. You yeah, sent yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, the Axios tweet, passion about abortion rights has fueled a stunning turnaround in Democrats' midterm fortunes. Their picture, the art to illustrate that is a donkey riding a red cross through a red wave rocking abortion. This is like, this donkey is just <laughs> abortion rip curl. And <laughs> it is the most tasteless, dumbest thing. It is just like, what what editor saw that and was like, yeah, I like it. It speaks to abortion. It, expe- it speaks to surfing animals. Go for it. Like, and, and by the way, I should, I should point out in the discussion of abortion, news outlets should remember this is a, even for people who are supportive of the women's access to elective abortion, should remember this is a serious, sensitive subject. Talking about the political implications about discussions about abortion, it's not cheerleading for one side or like, please be humane. Please be humane that half of the country or a big chunk of the country thinks that it's murder and the, and the women who actually have had abortions, this may be very sensitive for them, even if they are supportive of the right. So let's back off the surfing donkeys and abortion. Okay. <laughs> I did find that art very amusing. And <laughs> my, hear me out, boss. Hear me out on this one. You know, my takeaway from the repeated signals that the Dobbs decision is proving to be like a pol- politically useful to Democrats oh, ahead of sure. November is I am struck by how Democrats are seizing on the issue and the Republican response is kind of silence. Like they are not the- making their case on this issue, which is, you know, for, for Republicans who say like we should have a federal ban on abortion or I don't support you know, I support a full ban with no like exceptions on anything. Like maybe it's good to keep your mouth shut. Yes. But for Republicans who are where the public is on this, which is, you know, I support either a fetal heartbeat law or I support a ban at 20 weeks what DeSantis, or 12 what DeSantis weeks did or 16 weeks. Did. Why aren't they out there like making their case on this and saying like, Actually, it's Democrats who are the radicals on this position who are saying, like, well, what is your position? Okay. Would you have any restrictions so, on so, this? But I find them to be, like, totally passive on this. So let's say you're Brian Kemp. You're running for re-election. I think he's in good shape. No, Herschel Walker's probably going to be a little drag on the ticket, but I think he's in very good shape. But, but wait, wait. you might could be up and running for, like, EPA administrator in the next administration. Herschel Walker? Yeah, yeah the like, Trump administration. Trees, yeah, yeah, you got these trees, excessive trees. Maybe also, his explanation about how, about how clouds and air move yeah. around the globe is very— I think we got our next EPA administrator. He is, he, he is galaxy brain for sure. So, so if you're Brian Kemp and you're running against— Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, who's been a boat anchor around the necks of Democrats in Georgia and nationally— if you're running against Stacey Abrams, here's your here's your challenge. He did the politically astute thing, which is to say, in Georgia, we already have one of the country's strictest laws about abortion, and I forget whether they're ten weeks or twelve weeks or what what Georgia has. He said, "We're good. This is where we wanted to be. This is the bill that we wanted. Moving on." It's it, six weeks. So one of the so again one That's of the a heartbeat law. Yeah, one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. Now. If he talks about why he doesn't want to change the rules, who does he offend? If he if he says we have a great law and I don't want to change it, who's he making mad? Republican, the 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 10% or 15% of the Republican Party who wants to who would say we need to ban it. Six weeks is not enough. And there are too many exceptions in this. If he talks about it as as a good thing, he is reminding women who might not want to vote for Stacey Abrams, but maybe would like a more permissive structure. He's reminding them. So if you're Brian Kemp, I would just I, I would I would recommend that Republicans where they can shut up about it. OK, you gave two options, but the third option is to say like Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. is to put her on defense and to say like what she would have is like cracking the skulls of. Uh, babies yeah. who can survive outside the womb. Like if Stacey Abrams were writing the laws of Georgia, that is what she would want. And I think it to- like, to totally be, to allow women to be able to kill babies like 
after they are capable of survival outside of the mother's I think as defense, yes, but I would not be the one introduced. One of my, by the way, my political axioms is whichever party mentions abortion first in a race is the one that's trailing. If you want to know who's trailing. They are getting attacked on it. So anyhow, I I think that like Republicans cannot just be silent when, when it is a campaign issue that Democrats are using to bludgeon them. We're like far afield from media. But no, you've got, no, you've got to go. Look, here. here's the, we've talked. They have to have a response. We've talked before about the expectations game, and this is a media story. Okay, so in May, the Republicans were poised to absolutely thump Democrats, right? 30 seats in the House or whatever. Senate was going to tip over. You could see it like it was happening. And then the Dobbs decision came down, but something else happened. Donald Trump re-entered the news in a big, big way through January 6th, now with Mar-a-Lago. Basically, the way a midterm election is supposed to work is it's supposed to be, or it traditionally is, a referendum on the party in power and a referendum on the sitting president who won. The reason that only George Bush since, Nate, I don't know, the Second World War hasn't lost seats, maybe before that, hasn't lost seats in their first midterm. Only George Bush did because of 9-11. But the reason every president loses seat, his party loses seats in their first midterm is that it is a corrective to, well, we gave you too much in the last election, so we're going to take some back. So Donald Trump has scrambled that because now it's a referendum on Trump and Biden, right? So instead of just what Kevin McCarthy would have wanted, which is a referendum on Joe Biden and inflation, and high gasoline prices, it's also a referendum on Donald Trump. So this has changed the electoral climate. Now, people like Axios are out there to say like, actually, we're gonna win, it's gonna happen, here it goes, this is actually amazing. So let me tell, let me give you the fearless forecast, folks, because this, this will always be right. The party that thinks that it's succeeding will be arrogant and fail. So witness, Joe Biden, executive order, student loan forgiveness. I'm like, are you sniffing glue someplace in the White House? What political, what what totally moronic political advice somebody gave Joe, Joe Biden that in order to please people, and by the way, we can talk about the merits of a $10,000 student, and the number is is a good number because the people who... A lot of people who are carrying debt around are people who didn't finish their degrees and they have relatively low amounts of debt and it's a grind on them and all that stuff. Uh, And that would be something for, I don't know, Congress to have done, maybe just thinking out loud here. But in doing it, Biden has offended the conscience of and annoyed so many more people than he has helped. He has offended the, it is at a time when inflation is through the roof, at a time when Debt is out of control. And all of this stuff, this SOP, by the way, that mostly goes to higher income households, right? The, 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 the beneficiaries of student debt relief are not poor people. No, no. They are in the upper quintiles, economically speaking, because guess what? Who has the most college debt? People who got professional degrees, da-da-da-da-da. You all know this. So here's my theory. The press tells Biden the donkey is riding the cross, baby. We are in the we're it's it's in the rip curl. It's all going on, and Democrats become excessively optimistic, and the press cheerleads them to be excessively optimistic. Then they start being arrogant, making mistakes like this one, and it will help change the climate. So, in a, in a lot of ways, the press coverage informs the confidence level of the parties and causes them to either be correct, which is to say, humble and hardworking, and keeping their issue focus tight or arrogant, at which point they're like, why don't we give away a quadrillion dollars by presidential fiat? I think that's a plausible theory. And I think it also applies to why Democrats are making gains, because I think Republicans were lazy and not making their case and assuming that victory was going to come in November without effort. And so I think that having a scare put in them in this way is good. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I for their for their chances. A good way to think about this is. There's Although I don't know how they're going to overcome those Senate candidates, but well, yeah. you know, I, you got to figure JD that somehow if, if well, a, a very smart Republican put it to me this way, I think it's a good way to think about it. 
you know, Mitch McConnell's going to have to send 80 million bucks or whatever to Ohio to prop up J.D. Vance. And that's it shouldn't be necessary for Republicans in what is it still a good a, a better year for Republicans than Democrats in a very Republican state. But his point was, if J.D. Vance loses in Ohio, the Republicans are going to get crushed. Right. You'd have to sort of think that the climate enough is just to sort of get him over the finish line. But, yeah, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, this is, you know, this is goofball city. And by the way, one of the other ones, I know this is not a politics podcast, but Ron Johnson's underperformance in state level polling is hard and it's not super reliable. But here's what it's useful for. Find me the Delta. And the fact that Ron Johnson is consistently underperforming the gubernatorial candidate in Wisconsin should be very alarming. That should be very alarming because the Democratic candidate in Wisconsin stinks. And that so that tells you about the problems that Ron Johnson has. Now I'll stop. I actually am bullish on Ron Johnson only because I have memories of being out on the campaign trail with him in 2016 when he was totally left for dead and resentful about it. With good reason, it turned out that McConnell put no money into that race. And I remember driving like through Wisconsin from one stop to another with him, but like, you know, just shadowing him while he was on factory floors campaigning. And he he pulled that out. So I, I would not be surprised to he, see him he pull outperformed, this thing out. Ron Johnson outperformed Donald Trump by a bunch in Wisconsin. And so did Marco Rubio in Florida. But Johnson's problem now is and maybe it's part of his resentment or whatever. He just got too weird. But and the oh and oh, the other thing that changed in Wisconsin, the Scott Walker machine, right? The what Walker and Paul Ryan put together in Wisconsin was amazing in terms of their get out the vote, their organization, their ability to, to do that stuff. I think the Wisconsin Republican Party is a little bit messed up now. A little bit. Okay. What do we have next here? Oh, oh. Oh, oh, treat oh, wait. yourself. Wait, wait. Actually, I want to switch the order of these items. Okay. We have the New York Times Union. Uh-oh. Did you follow this? No. Alleging systemic racism uh, of New York Times performance reviews. Clearly. Oh, well, I want to read this to you. You can so, see the New York Times just uh, obviously a dripping hellhole of racism. You can't. Okay. You can't. You can barely look at the paper without okay. being reminded. I am going to read this to you. Uh, the headline from National Public Radio, David Folkenflik, people of color at New York Times get lower ratings in job reviews, oh, Union no. says. And so I just find it so funny that, like, you know, all of this stuff that they foment and gin up in their news coverage is coming home to roost from their union inside the paper. So an analysis of comprehensive data for roughly 1,000 New York Times employees conducted by members of the union that represents its newsroom found that black and Latino staffers are far less likely than their white peers to receive strong job ratings. Uh, there are financial consequences to job raisings because they influence the size of employee bonuses. The News Guild union staff says, but staffers tell NPR the differential is even more important because it indicates an underlying systemic problem that the paper is failing to address. It is demoralizing, they say, and contributes to the premature departure of some colleagues. And then I'm going to quote from the, this is from the union's report that it put out, being Hispanic reduced the odds of receiving a high score by about 60% and being black cut the chances of high scores by nearly 50%. That's not how that works. That's not how any of that works. So That's not what that means. And by the way, these goofuses. So you tell me that people of color are afflicted by racism from birth in America and that the, the, all of these disadvantages. So you tell me that all of that is true. and You tell me about the failing schools and you tell me about all of these problems that they suffer and that racism is to blame for. Well, how come you would think then that they would arrive at the New York Times just ready to rumble, right? After all of the crushing racism that they have been subject to in their life, even under that theory of the case, shouldn't they arrive at the New York Times less able than others? Wouldn't that make sense? This is the kind of, you know, you've heard my rant about this many times, but, you know, very often when there's something written about race, you know what you could just substitute in for race? Poor. You could just put poor people in. I am sure that if you were to control the New York Times evaluations for children of, of, for what kind of household did you grow up in? 
did you grow up? What was the what was the income level in your home? What was the educational attainment level of your parents? What county? How about we could you know what we could do? We could just do zip codes. You could just tell me the zip code of everybody in the New York Times where they grew up. I bet we could plot out that people who were raised in poor households would have worse performance records than people who were raised in rich households. Because if you, both of your parents went to college and both of you, and your parents had good jobs and you had a lot of resources and you were encouraged to go to a good school and all of that stuff, you're probably better at that thing. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say that black and brown people in America are you know, crushed by racism at every turn and then say, aha, this is like in criminality when we talk about who's committing crimes. Well, which which one is it? And these people would not be satisfied. This union would not be satisfied until everybody got the same review, right? Everyone is super. You're all doing great. And it's wonderful. Though, what was the, there was a, a teacher's union in, I think maybe Minnesota, Oh, yes. Was that um, Minnesota? Yes, yes. It's that if you do layoffs, you have to lay off the white people. Yeah, white people must be laid yeah, off first. That, that's Minneapolis. And, you know, cut it out, people. Like, let individuals be individuals. Do not make everything about race. Race is a very powerful part of American life. But I'm here to tell you, poverty, education, and family formation is a much bigger driver of personal performance and experience than the amount of melanin in their skin. Up next, and this is you oh, know, this is so our little good. little style uh, page item is mm. we get a preview of the new Hillary and Chelsea Clinton series on Apple TV. Roll that beautiful. Uh, we gotta roll it. Yeah, roll that beautiful bean footage. We're hitting the road to shine a light on women who inspire us to be bolder and braver. Leadership doesn't look one way. It's a giant rainbow. You're not going to break me down. You'll get worn out before I do. Women who push us outside our comfort zone. You got this. And make us laugh. I'm in deep Georgia, and they might have never met a Muslim. Or they don't know they have. Or they don't know they have. Because we walk among you. <laughs> You have a marriage that has been on public display mm. since the beginning. You said the gutsiest thing you ever did was stay in your marriage. That doesn't mean that's right for everybody. I got it. I got to tell you, Eliana Johnson. It's, guys, it's it's called gutsy. Is that it's is what's the name of the show? What's gutsy? The, come on. It's called gutsy. And it's and, it's, and about it's Hillary Clinton and Chelsea and Chelsea Clinton talking to other celebrities, basically like Kim Kardashian's oh in that. Gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, uh, why? Why? Being why? gutsy. Why? This what is did... the content America craves. This country has been nothing if if not over generous with the Clinton family. I gutsy, mean, gutsy. What when will it be enough? When will you when will the Clintons and the and take the Trumps with them when they go? When will they have afflicted the country that has made them Wealthy beyond any any the the wildest dreams of a young Bill Clinton in in Hot Springs, Arkansas. When when will it be enough? And what is wrong at Apple? By the way, of all the streaming services, I cannot figure out what Apple Plus thinks. I I don't know I don't know what the green lighting process is like. Oh my gosh! I just watched the most amazing show on Apple. What'd Plus, you watch? So Blackbird. What's that about? Oh, Sounds guys, scary. have you watched? I've heard. It's okay, it is a true story that was like taken about a gun runner who was told they were going to put him in a maximum security prison to extract a confession from a serial killer who Ooh. was challenging. He's saying that his confession was coerced, so they were like, "You got to get go in here and get the real thing." It is a true story, and I've like looked. Who's up, in it? Oh, I forget the actors now. It is fantastic, and the when you look it up, the actors are so true to life. Oh, um, cool! Actually, one of the actors is the guy who pr- played Richard Jewell. The guy who plays a serial killer is the guy who also he played does Richard have a Jewell. good. I hate I hate to say it, but he's got a look. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is so good. So I'm high on Apple Plus right now, Apple TV Plus. I can't figure it out, but I, I you know, wh- what do I know? I will say I watched great movie the other day which uh, did you ever see fox chaser or fox catcher yeah. fox catcher yeah <coughs> which is the story of john dupont yes and, i saw that the wrestling yeah, yeah 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 and mark ruffalo who i'm like whatever but what's his name channing tatum and steve carell 
all three of them turned in, as you say, these amazing lifelike performances. Then when you look at videos of these people, they really inhabited the characters, which was probably creepy and weird for all of them because it's a very creepy, weird movie. I I have seen that, yes. It's good. It's um, good. It was don't, good. Don't watch it if it, like... Normally I watch, you know, Jessica and I watch Magnum P.I. together, at the original. And my my treat for myself before I go to bed, I will watch an episode of Bar Rescue. So Oh, that, that's good too. That will that yeah. will that will tell you where what where my brow is. It's a pretty low brow. All right. It is time for our obsessions of the week. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station. Working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. The stories that we could not get out of our heads. I have a very risque one this week that Chris, I already know, is ready to smack down. But I have been getting this. The the former like author of Game Change, Me Too'd guy, Mark Halperin, I have been reading his morning newsletter, and it's kind of good. And it led me to think that... This, this morning newsletter is called Wide World of News, and it made me think, like, how insanely boring the mainstream media makes you, and I'm going to include myself in that, and just in terms of how narrow the parameters are on what it's acceptable to say there, because there are all these amusing references in this newsletter to the capital D dominant capital M media and it's like, man, you were the dominant media like for all these years until you were me too'd. And now there's all these references to it in his newsletter. So I will read a couple. So he makes a point that like, okay, the, the, the dominant media might be face, focused on abortion as a midterm issue favoring the Democrats, but watch this space for immigration coming back as an issue. And I was like, oh, you know, that's a very interesting point. And there are a lot of things like that. Another thing he says about Liz Cheney, he says, so it is the Tuesday's primaries, especially that of the doomed Liz Cheney in Wyoming, are seen exclusively through the prism of Trump, Trump, Trump. As in one of the 10,000 examples I could cite, this quote from an Associated Press dispatch. And the quote is, I'm still hopeful that the polling numbers are wrong, said Landon Brown, a Wyoming state representative and vocal Cheney ally. It'll be a crying shame if she really does lose. It shows just how much of a stranglehold that Donald Trump has on the Republican Party. You can find more interesting stuff in like counterintuitive takes in that newsletter than like in most of the mainstream morning newsletters. And what I thought was funny is what a contrast it strikes with his former counterpart, John Heilman, who's like still all over MSNBC. And I wanted to play a little montage of like how Heilman talked about all of the Liz Cheney stuff. Let's play that. Didn't can't, never thought I'd tear up over over seeing Dick Cheney mm-hmm. on television. And it's like there's just Wyoming's a is a really small state, and there's a very small number of Republicans who are going to vote in this primary. It, it's it, on the Republican side, and I do not trust the polling there. I still wouldn't bet on her winning, but I I just so, I don't want anybody to think this is over because I don't think it necessarily is. Talking first about a Republican primary that more than any other in this election cycle was defined by the disgraced, twice impeached, coup plotting deplatformed, pathologically duplicitous ex-president and his campaign to overturn the last presidential election and subvert American democracy. This is a win for her. I mean, this is where she stands now, having lost this race on the sake of principle. I know she's fighting to try to stop Donald Trump, too. That's that's the, the big stakes of this fight, the immediate stakes from him ever being president again. But from her, in terms of her political future, this has been uh, she emerges a lar- an enlarged figure with a brighter future than she's ever had before for having lost this race uh, on the basis of fighting for principle, something well, also we I- don't see very often in American politics. So, you know, look, I, I think the sky, I don't know if the sky's the limit for her, but she's got a big future ahead, I think. So my upshot, I think, is being liberated from the mainstream. Nobody would, uh, I'm going to trip all over myself finding a an inoffensive way to say this. I don't even know if there is one, but Anyhow, the mainstream makes you boring, I think. 
this person has some interesting things to say. I will leave the me, me too stuff to a different to a different audio, different different time. I mean, Chris hates the newsletter. I I don't read the newsletter. I don't care. I I thought the journalism that he and John Heilman did together was horrible. I thought their books were garbage. I thought was it capital D dominant, capital M media. I thought that the access journalism candidate nuzzling. I would encourage everyone to look up the video of John Heilman and Mark Halperin riding on a Zamboni with Donald Trump <laughs> at the Woolman Ice yeah. Rink, just giggling, just funsters, just having a blast doing it. Oh, ha, 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 ha. You know what? I feel bad for Mark Halperin. I'm sure he's had a miserable time after he was discharged for the, the accusations made against him. I'm sure it's been a very unhappy time. This reads like a bitter person who was very content to engage in the kind of back-scratching, celebrity-nuzzling journalism that he engaged in for all those years. And then when that world threw him out, he turned on it and calls them the dominant media and blah, 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 blah. I'm sure he has some pretty good insights. He's co- He covered politics for a long time about some stuff. I just don't care. It's, it's, it's impossible for me to care about what a guy who... You know, yeah, he went on he went on a journey, but he seems bitter and he wasn't impressive before. Good item. Well, that was my that so I'm because I, I'm, I think there's truth in your take because I was ill prepared because I'm exhausted. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I'm I'm piggybacking. We'll have a double. We'll call that. We're both obsessed with it. I actually have a friend, very a, a very dear friend of mine, who occasionally will send me the Halpern email. Oh yeah. And he'll be like, hey, just, you know, and especially when my take will line up in the same neighborhood, he'll be like, ah, da, 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 da. And I say, I'm always so uh, insulted. I feel offended when you, when you like, I think of him as a very, very smart person. He is a very, very smart person. And the fact that he likes my work and, and that work, I'm like, hmm, hmm. Oh, what does that I say? I feel that way. No, I know. I I'm, I'm mostly, I'm mostly kidding. We mostly just make fun of each other. About okay. It. Well, I'm glad that. You have no obsession, and we can just move straight to reader mail. Let's my do favorite, it. my favorite time of the week. Okay, up first, we have a note from Mr. Brad Bong. I mean, I, it's so great. It is so great. Hey there, Eliana and Chris. I've become a longtime listener thanks to your dear friend Megan. That would be Megan Kelly. Hello. I've been debating saying this for a while as I didn't want to embarrass myself, but what the hell? Here goes. Okay, I already like love this letter. That's like, that it's a great start. He's really goes. checking a lot of boxes. Outside of the in. impressive, fun, and thought-provoking impression you've made in my weekly commute, Chris has single-handedly set an astronomically high bar for any future par- partner. With all due respect, Chris, as a gay man, I like to imagine that a future partner would have to have your brilliant mind, your gracious outlook on life, manners and decency, and your shrewd and accurate position on men's dress sneakers. <laughs> but most of all, your sense of humor, and whenever you use your silly accents and voices, it brings me such joy. Please don't ever change, and thank you for setting my dating bar well above my six-foot-tall reach, sir. And this really made me think, we never get any notes saying how I've set a dating bar for anybody. Well, you're you know beyond reach. But I do love all the notes we get about Chris. Well, I got to say, so, this you know, we is... never get any notes being like, I am so happy to have been exposed to a loud, annoying Jewish oh, woman who has set a new bar. Come new on. New bar for me. I want to say this is a new bar for me because gay dudes are picky. And I would never have imagined that the gay dudes of any of the gay dudes of America would be like that Chris Steyerwalt. Yeah. You know what I, I, like? I didn't see that one coming, I li- I li- to be I, honest. I, I, I like a plus-sized hillbilly in a bow tie. That's really what's I did what's not up. So see that one You've coming. made my day, Brad Bong, and thank you for being here. Plus, good name. Yeah, fantastic. Ama- balls. Okay. And then our second email is from Ari, who we asked for Jonah sightings on CNN, and this is a brief email who tells us Jonah has been on CNN nearly weekly for several months. Yes, we had asked. You. You, you people are all right. We asked thank you people for Jonah Goldberg sightings. And Ari's like, yeah, weekly, yes. duh. Where have we been? Duh. So, Chris, that brings us to your favorite time. Which is when I am forced to say something nice. <laughs> but you lead by example. So what is your favorite item of the week? 
Well, I, in doing this book tour, I got to I've gotten to talk to and do interviews with local news outlets, thanks to the good people of Nexstar, home to News Nation, and talking to local pol. So the good news is that local politics reporters wanted to talk to me to do little segments, you know, for their Sunday shows or whatever. And Nate Moore can join me in this much of national political reporting in a midterm year relies on the strong shoulders of local outlets, dudes and gals like these who are like, they're grinding it out. And it's, you know, when we're looking for what's going on in a race, where are we starting? We're starting with these people and they have an extra obligation because if Nate and I have an item in Steyerwaldisms that gets the Georgia Senate race wrong, or we actually we did have an interesting back and forth with the voters of Washington State recently about the primaries there. If we get it wrong, you know, whatever, 90% of the readers aren't from there. And okay, you know, if we miss the tone a little bit, those folks have to live in the state. If you work for the station in Raleigh and you're talking about the North Carolina Senate race and you're getting it wrong, people are going to remember. So they keep a high standard. I am really grateful for their work. We're ripping you off constantly. And thank you for hosting me. It was good to talk to all of you. My favorite item was a long New York Times magazine piece with the headline, Willie Nelson's Long Encore. Subheadline is, as he approaches 90, even brushes with death can't keep him off the road or dim a a late-life creative burst. It is by Jody Rosen, and it is awesome. And I pulled, we'll link it, but I pulled this little bit. The trumpeter and composer Wynton Marsalis recalls a revealing backstage moment. It was me, Willie, B.B. King, Ray Charles, and Eric Clapton. Oh, you know. You, you know, know, just like, hanging. He says, all shooting the breeze. And Willie said, well, gentlemen, I think I'm the only one here who actually picked cotton. Everyone burst into laughter. Willie has had some profound experience, Marsalis says. His music, his knowledge comes from a long, long way. It's really, really great. I, lo- I love Willie Nelson. And I'm glad that he's getting his due. And he and Johnny Cash both had, or have in Willie Nelson's case, still having a late life renaissance, right? And I think it's totally awesome. And I think it's great. And, you know, he apparently has, his, his Willie Nelson's decision to forego liquor for cannabis was, a, a, seemed dubious perhaps to, to some at the time, but he has, uh, he has, he has endured. <laughs> he has endured. I think endured. he says in here that that changed his life. Yeah, he's talked about it. It's it was a like he needed to stop drinking, or he was gonna. By the by the way, one of the greatest songs about misery and drinking, Willie Nelson wrote. I I think he wrote certainly performed Bloody Mary Morning, Baby Left Me Without Warning, Sometime in the Night. Now I'm heading down to Houston, and it's about that the that feeling and that stuff, which is right up there with Johnny Cash, who actually was singing a Chris Christopherson song, but had a massive hit with uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down. And kudos. I love that song. It's a uh, great song. But yes, so in here it says, smoking has endangered his life, but it also, he thinks, saved it. He has often said that he would have died long ago had he not taken up weed and laid off drinking, which made him rowdy and self-destructive. Now, in his late 80s, he has reached the age where getting out of bed each morning can be construed as a feat of survival. Last night I had a dream that I died twice yesterday. He sang in 2017, but I woke up still not dead again today. He's great. It's awesome. Kudos to the New York Times for covering stuff that isn't that that is that is shall we say out in the flyover country. People still love Willie Nelson, so that's cool. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.